Welcome to the Biblical Leadership at Work podcast. I am your host, Jason Woodard. On this month's episode, you will meet Michael Seitzma, president of KeyBank in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Michael has nearly 20 years of leadership experience in the banking industry, as well as multiple leadership roles in nonprofits. The major theme you will hear throughout today's conversation is servant leadership. I just think when we're making decisions, it, it shouldn't be about the people at the highest level. It's how is it affecting the constituency? And I think sometimes we, we get it flipped around a little bit because ultimately the biggest leaders, the people in the highest positions of power, have the highest responsibility, not for themselves, but truly to serve all of the people that are supporting them. We discuss the importance of this principle, many practical ways to serve those we work with, and how we can extend that service into ministries inside and outside of the church. During the interview, Michael talks about a ministry he is passionate about and how it got started rather unexpectedly. He came over and he said, I thought you were in... Democratic Republic of Congo. He said, well, I was. I, I just came home. I said, well, how was it? He said, I adopted 27 children. And I said, what? And uh, he said, I need help. And he explains how God has brought everything together to support and fund an orphanage for desperately needed children. Michael also shares some excellent words of wisdom for younger leaders. Find something that you, you love and go find a way to be excellent at it. Don't, don't get married to what other people think you should do or what you know, society thinks, hey, this is the process to success. These are the steps. There's no one way and there's no, it's not a destination. So just find something that you love and, and then go be excellent. Listen in and learn from a humble leader who is still learning and passionate about doing it in a way that honors Christ. Okay, well, Michael Seitzma, brother, I appreciate you joining me today. I really am looking forward to getting to know you and having our guests do the same. So thanks for being on the show, man. Appreciate it. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be here. Look forward to it. Tell us a little bit about career-wise, what are you doing? How'd you get there? How'd the Lord lead you into the position you're in? Uh, Maybe educational background, a little bit of your career history. Tell us about that stuff. Presently, I I serve as the president of KeyBank for West Michigan, with our office downtown Grand Rapids. My path is fairly circuitous in that I uh, I grew up in Grand Rapids. I went to school at Miami University and was planning on going into real estate of some sort or manufacturing. I couldn't decide which one to do, so I had an internship at a bank and took a job at a bank when I graduated, and I figured I'll figure out which one of those two paths I want to take. And lo and behold, it kind of got a hold of me, and I enjoyed where I was, what I was doing with banking. And I did banking for a number of years and then I left and I did some real estate development and then came back into banking uh, five years later and have been with it. And I've, I've really enjoyed just being able to invest in West Michigan. It's actually one of the things I've enjoyed. It's people you get to work with, people you get to serve. So I've been doing banking most of my career. have really had fun watching the city in West Michigan grow up while also being involved on the banking side. We've been pretty familiar with Grand Rapids for about 17 years. Um, our, we have our youngest son, who's 17, who has been up to DeVos numerous times. He's had a lot of surgeries, a lot of, you know, a lot of healthcare challenges. I can remember the first time we went up there for him and uh, that, you know, that whole medical area, top of the hill and how, how it's developed to now. I mean, we, we can remember when DeVos Children's Hospital was built. Actually, he was admitted. And so he transferred from the old building, which was part of, I think, Butterworth. Yeah. And then he yeah. was he was the first patient in the room that he got. He got carted over to when they opened the new building. And the, oh, my word. Yeah, the news, you know, media was there and everything when they were transporting all the kids. So, 
yeah, we've seen that. It's been an incredible growth. It's a pretty, pretty cool city for sure. Yeah. I think sometimes we don't appreciate how great the facilities and care are. And while probably most people don't want to go into those, uh, if you need to, the services are fantastic. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, we're, we're pretty fortunate. So Michael, tell us a little bit about your family. What, what, what's that situation look like? Have kids, wife, how long have you been married? Stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, your, your question comes at, a, at an interesting time. My, my wife and I are coming up on our 30th anniversary in December, but we have three children and one son-in-law. And our oldest, uh, our daughter, lives in Korea. And she moved there to teach during COVID and has been there for two and a half years and uh, recently uh, married uh, a friend who became a boyfriend, who became a fiance, who became her husband. And so they actually just visited us for five weeks and just left last Saturday. So they were here with us for a while. And then our our son, uh, our middle child is in medical school down in Georgia. And he was able to come up for nine days while my daughter and son-in-law were here. So we had him back home for a little bit. And uh, our youngest daughter, who's going to be a senior at Michigan State, had been traveling overseas for a semester, and she came just before our other daughter. So we had we had the whole crew kind of all together uh, yeah. intermittently. And uh, our youngest to stay with us this summer, she has an internship in Grand Rapids. And uh, so we also have a almost a fifteen year old dog named Barley that's living with us. You still have a teenager so, at home. Um, we live downtown Grand Rapids. Um, just moved here about a year and a half, two years ago from East Grand Rapids where we, we uh, raised the kids. And so we're, you know, we're trying to get the, the kids a little bit closer. Our daughter in Korea actually is in the process of buying a home. She and her husband are going to move here next year. And so we're excited to have them. And uh, my son is desiring to uh, be able to uh, do some of his medical practice uh, closer to Grand Rapids or Michigan. So we'll see how that goes. We celebrated 30 years uh, in, on June 12th. So so congratulations, congratulations to you guys. Yeah. And uh, we are fortunate enough to have both of our, our kids are still nearby. our, And that, so that is a blessing to be able to just get together. And, you know, because when grandkids oh, yeah. come, it's super cool to be able to spend time with those. I hope that goes well for you. I was introduced to you when you did a podcast um, with somebody that I know. And in that, you talked about a ministry that you are super passionate about. And so uh, I'd like to just have you tell us about Tell us about the organization. Tell us a little bit about your involvement there. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's its name is Christoph's Children, and it came up suddenly, unexpectedly, I guess. Uh, a good friend of mine who was a refugee from the Democratic Republic of Congo. He is now a U.S. citizen. Our paths crossed a number of years ago, and through just life experiences, we became very close. And we, I mean, he's a member of our family. We love him. And uh, he was able to, his, his wife had not been able to come to the United States. She came about five years later and she's now been here for a few years. But Christoph, my friend and I had, had talked about how do you help his village? There was some warring and some, uh, some tragedies that uh, he had to leave. And uh, he lost his, uh, both of his parents. And he lost uh, his brother and sister. And yet he had asked, how do I give back? How do I help my village? And we had talked about it. And we frankly, we just kind of got hung up on how would we manage something? How would we do a good job of, of uh, taking care of our responsibilities? And two years ago, um, February of 2021, um, he, I should say, he adopted uh, his two nephews and he adopted his niece, both of whom lost their parents, um, it was his brother and sister. So they live in Uganda. And one of them had an accident and was in the hospital unconscious. 
And so he, he flew out to, to be with them and try to ascertain the problem and see if they could get him uh, healthy. In the process, he, he did come back to consciousness, but needed some medical attention. And through that process, he ended up, Christoph ended up close to his hometown in Kalehe. And a friend was hosting him, stayed with him and said, listen, I can take care of Kenny while we wait for the results of the MRI. But if you want to go back to Kalehe, why don't you go ahead? And he hadn't been there in 14 or 15 years. So when he went back, he noticed that there were a hundred plus, uh, probably almost 150 orphan children just on the street. And, and these aren't streets like we think of, they're, they're, they're dirt roads, they look like off-road tracks. But in Christoph's got a, just a, a big heart. And um, fast forward a little bit, he came home. Uh, we were actually getting ready to, we were saying goodbye to our daughter. She was leaving for Korea and he came over and he said, I thought you were in Democratic Republic of Congo. He said, well, I was, I, I just came home. I said, well, how was it? He said, I adopted 27 children. And I said, what? And uh, he said, I need help. And so uh, the thing that we had been talking about, how do we, how do we serve? How do we help his village just came? He, uh, he served rice, beans, and juice, interviewed children, took the 27 worst, found a food storage building that could accommodate. And he was given approval to let them stay there and put some pads, pillows, blankets together, just said, I'm going to take care of you without an idea of how yet to do it. And so we sat down that following Sunday and put together a program. Uh, what would it take to pay for all the children, to sponsor them, to provide health care, provide education, to provide food and clothing and boots and shelter? And it started that fast. Uh, it was very reactive. And if you fast forward simply two years from now or from then, we now have a compound says makes it sound greater, but it is a, a house and an outdoor media area and, and bathrooms. And it's, it's a contained area uh, for 56 children. 28 girls, 28 boys. We have a house mom, a house dad, uh, some support from the, the community. And they all have education. They all have health care. They're healthy, uh, generally. Uh, there's a couple of issues that we're working through with a couple of the kids, but they're happy. Uh, they're joy-filled. They smile. They sing. They pray. And fortunately, I, I was able to go there. Last year, I went, but I wasn't able to get across the border. Uh, there are some issues happening there, but I got across this year. So Christoph and I just got back in June, spent some time there and got a chance to meet all the kids and uh, give them hugs and kisses. And it, it, was an, it was a remarkable experience just to see them versus what they were when they were found. Uh, their stories are tragic. They're sad. And um, there wasn't a lot of hope. And to see them today, it's remarkable. They're, they're talking about what they want to do when they grow older. Uh, and finish up their schooling in Kalehe, and they want to go on to school, and they want to be, uh, they want to be attorneys like Papa Christoph was when he was in Africa, and they want to be doctors. Uh, they want one of them wants to be uh, a nun, one of them wants to be an angel. There's engineers, and uh, just the things that they want to do, they they now have hope and they have vision, and they see that there's more for their their future than that they thought of before. And just being part of that has been remarkable. And the, the people who've come around and, and, and seen the opportunity to serve and, and love these kids has been, um, you know, it's just nothing that we plan, but the steps just continue to make sense. And um, we're, we're trying to go back in January. My wife was not able to go with me. And so we're, we're trying to get back there in January so she get a chance to meet all the children as well. But yeah, it's been special. No, it's an incredible story, and I appreciate you sharing it. That's even an abbreviated version. I know I've heard the you know a little more in depth story. Yeah. I one of the things that I think is super cool about this is you think about how God's gifted you with business skills, leadership, right here in the U.S. and right, and you use that to 
to lead a bank and to lead people. And you've had years of experience doing that. And then he puts you alongside this guy from a different country, a completely different culture, who's got a huge heart, who has, God's given him really, I would say a vision or a, a desire, a strong desire. If you just go adopt 26 kids, I mean, that's a, I'm just going to right without a, without really a solid, like there's no business yeah. plan, right? This guy's like, I'm just going to make this happen because I feel like I'm led to, to help these. And I think that's, that's just very cool that God put you guys together and your two passions, skills, minds together to go from an idea to a functioning orphanage in an area that it was desperately needed. That's that's, yeah. that's cool. You know, it, you know, it's also been as a peer, when Chris Starup initially said, I need help, and we had no idea what we were doing. And we, we just sat down and literally it was my wife, myself, Christoph, and my younger daughter. And at the time, my daughter would have been 19. And uh, she did more work than anybody to set it up. Uh, she set up the website. She figured out how to set up the sponsorship so that we could receive donations for anybody willing. And she just did a bunch of the computer work, the legwork, and it gave her an opportunity to create something. And she has been involved since the beginning and has seen how something from a just saying yes, which was Kristoff, yeah. leads to something being created that now has a whole bunch of people supporting it and just I mean, really, it's just the faith of Christoph saying, I'm going to do this. I have no idea how, but it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Yep. Right. And then people come along because they see the vision is a good one. And it's one that has need. And I think those oftentimes make it a lot easier for people to come along. And so that's been, I think, a neat teaching opportunity. It certainly taught me lessons. But uh, for my 19-year-old, now 21-year-old daughter, who's been so involved, it's been a special experience. And uh, my wife does... An awful lot, and uh, she said, "I'm not set up to do all this stuff." But she's been learning, and we we're fortunate. A friend of mine who has a heart for some stuff in Africa, I just called up. He's uh, at Barnes and Thornburg, and I just said, "I need help setting up a 501c3." And the, the firm was kind enough to support us and help us through, hold our hand, so we did it right. And uh, my golf partner is a is, is an auditor at Plant Moran and managing partner, and I just said, I, "We need some help with oversight." And, financials and what we need to do and that they've been kind to help us along and give us guidance to make sure we're doing the right things. But it's, it's been a neat process. Well, praise the Lord. God brought all the right resources from your daughter, right? To the plant Moran guy, to you, to Christoph. And it's just, yes. it's amazing to see how he works like that. So, so Michael, let's go different topic here. Tell us a little bit about your faiths background. You know, how'd you come to know the Lord? What's that, what's that journey look like? You know, I, I don't have a a lightning strike type story, which some people have, and, and some people wish they did, and some people wish they didn't, or I'm not sure where you fit, but mine was, is pretty simple. I, I was uh, raised in Grand Rapids. I was born here, and uh, I was raised in a Christian home, and so that's always been part of my life. And how I've tried to simplify my, my story is probably this. If, if I think of my faith almost as a, a book, I've had this book since I was born, and I would say I, I probably had it more on the shelf when I was younger and, um, you know, even going uh, off to college, you're, you know, you're independent and you're learning your way. And I still had that book, but it was more on the shelf. And I, I met my wife when I was in school. Um, we got married shortly after I, I finished school. She was actually a, a year ahead of me and she moved up to Grand Rapids from Ohio. And I think we, we started just taking the book off the shelf a little bit more uh, together. 
And I think as we did that, it just it continued to grow. And then we saw how it uh, shaped opportunities, how it shaped vision, and our, our faith grew. And I, I look back now and think about then versus now and the richness of our lives and um, the opportunities that have come and the meaning behind it. I, I have a closer faith, stronger faith today, and it's a very integral part of um, my, my life and my, my wife's and my life. And um, hopefully, I, you know, everybody has their different paths, but it's been, it's been special. And some of that comes with, you know, you talk about having experience in the hospital uh, with your, I think it was your son. Um, you know, life has some ups and downs and that refines you a bit, a little bit yeah, like a crucible. Sure. Yep. That's right. And so you, you start to really have more significant thoughts and considerations on what's most important in where you stand. And so we, we have not been without those experiences. And I, I think probably some of that could push you farther apart either as a couple or even from a face standpoint, or it could bring you closer together. And thankfully for us, it's brought us closer together from a relationship with each other, my wife and I, and I think our family, uh, but also from a face standpoint. I wouldn't want to repeat all the challenges, but I would never want to give them up because they uh, really, it, it ended up making life richer as a result. Ironic, but true. No, it's absolutely true. I think uh, those crucible moments that I've experienced, whether it be professionally, which I've had some, and then just personally, a lot of it through our son and his health journey, always, always are the times that I grew in my faith. You know, I grew closer to the Lord. I grew more disciplined spiritually and just, yeah, because all the stuff that you think matters just fades away more, right? Those things that you're focusing on, whatever, that you probably shouldn't be as much career, money, uh, whatever, right? Your your own your own pride. It's pride that uh, just starts to get knocked away a little bit more. So I understand that one hundred percent. Hey, so let's talk a little bit about leadership, Michael. You've been leading people for a long time, and uh, I always like to 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 get some insight on people who have been doing this for for years. And w- if you think about your leadership style and what you've learned over the years, what's what does it boil down to? Like, what's your key leadership principle or motto or anything that you always go back to or even, you know, share with newer leaders to, to focus on? It's always concerning when somebody asks you what, what you think or how you do, because then you're worried you don't do a good job of it. But a lot of it just has come down to realizing that, I mean, we're here to serve and leadership strangely. And I, th- I think this is biblical, but I also think it's just from a, from a secular standpoint, what, what is our role? I mean, we are there to serve other people. We're there to serve our clients. We're there to serve our team. And I think understanding that leadership is, I mean, there's a lot of components to it, but ultimately we're there to serve and to help others along and to be better. Because, I mean, ultimately, if, if we have a team of people, the better they are, the better we are. And so I'd say really just serve and love. I like coming into the office. I, I have, I mean, um, the, the people that I get to work with, I enjoy. I mean, I just enjoy the people. And I, and I think I've talked to a lot of people and younger people too, that you really need to think about how you spend your day. Some people get married to the idea of a job or a position or a title. And, and I understand that. And sometimes that's just an aspiration that has been part with a person for a long time. Um, it could also be pride, like you want to attain a certain level to say, hey, I, I can do this. And those yeah. are those are fine. But I think for me, one of the, the parts that I love most is just finding a place that you enjoy, you truly enjoy. Because if you enjoy being there with the people doing it and 
the people you serve, you're going to be happy. You're going to have more balance. It'll be more sustainable. I think it'll be good both for at work hours and when you're away from work hours, because it will just feel right. Um, and I, I'm fortunate right now. I just, I have a nice balance from that standpoint. I truly enjoy the people that I get to do business with. And, and that includes clients. And you find this, that not every client is a perfect fit and you need to find that. The client needs to make sure they're finding the right fit. And that's an important part of a good, of a good relationship. And, um, so I'd say just understanding the service part and trying to help others. And sometimes it's personal. Sometimes it's benefiting their business. Sometimes it's just making connections for them that will help them along regardless of their needs. You just don't know where you can end up helping people. But West Michigan's great that way too. I think there's uh, a big heart to serve others. I think it's just part of the culture. Grand Rapids, I believe, is still ranked as the, the number two most philanthropic city in the country. And so there, there's a heart of, of service and giving and uh, the impact you have on the community. And so it, I think it permeates West Michigan fairly well. I think it's unique for us and it's, it, it makes it more enjoyable to serve here. So whether that's in the office or whether that's in, with boards, committees, uh, just friendships, I, I think that maybe is the, the goal that I would have if I could just learn to stay focused on serving others and loving others. At the very beginning, you said that's a biblical concept, right? Having that mindset of service is, is a biblical concept. It makes me think this is a, from Matthew twenty twenty eight, and it says, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, Christ did come to serve. He set, a, he set aside every, you know, his rights as king of the universe, and he still is, but he came and walked these dirt paths and walked, you know, a, a perfect life and went to the cross for us. And that's a model for us in every aspect of life. I mean, in the church, every gift we're given is meant to serve. But then I, and I believe as leaders in a, in a bank and a manufacturing setting and a, whatever we do, that that's what it all boils down to is going in there and saying, I'm going to serve my customers well, I'm going to serve my team well, and ensure that they're being provided with what they, what they need. And sometimes, and you met, the other thing I really appreciate that you mentioned is there's times you have customers that aren't a good fit. And I, and there's times we have employees that aren't a good fit. And I've experienced that in love, out of service for them. And you do it in a way that's loving and caring. You help them find something that's a better fit. And it might be in the organization. It might not be in the organization. And you can, and I think you can do those things well in love and see them ultimately be very successful and celebrate with them as a human, right? Just because you went somewhere else yeah. and aren't on my team anymore working for my company, I still, you know, care for you and want the best. So yeah, I think that's going with that mindset to go in and serve is so, so important for Christian leaders. Yeah, especially I think the I think just about everybody wants to be find happiness and and uh, fulfillment. And so we we all can find ourselves in a position that just doesn't match uh, us well. And so if, if you can identify that and if others recognize that, then, then where is that location? Where is that spot? Where is the, the challenge? What, what's the right fit? And like you said, celebrate when they can find that. Uh, it's great when it's staying on that team, but people change and evolve and their needs and their, their goals change. The other thing that's interesting is, as you were saying, the leader part, I think a lot of people get confused, uh, leadership versus position. And, you know, the interesting thing, uh, as I look at our team, I mean, we have a lot of leaders. And so sometimes you might have a title that people think is a leadership title and other times you might have a, a title that doesn't look like a leadership title. And the reality is leadership and title are two different things. That's right. And so the, the leadership is 
something that you try to take with you um, where appropriate. But I mean, we've got a team of leaders. We all have different roles and different titles and, um, and respecting that because I learned so much from the other people on my team, from their leadership, from their experiences. And I think when we put our, our pride aside and recognize, again, we're just there to serve, we are open to learn from other people so that we become better and so that the whole team becomes better. And I think that's a special place if you can, when you're there, because you can be honest with each other about, hey, what do you think about this? Or you know, how have you handled that? You know, is this effective? What would you recommend? And you can learn from all different people and it makes the team better. Oh, I think that's, that, that is absolutely true. I'm thinking of multiple examples. One that comes to my mind that I, I feel led to share is, I, so I work in manufacturing, have for 30 years. And anytime I'm new to a team, new to a plant, I want to know, and I'll ask this question too, of people who have been there, like who's, who's the leaders out in the shop? And I don't mean the supervisors because I know them, right? I know the production manager, but I want to know, you know, not the real leaders. I don't want to say real leaders because it's not real and fake, but it's that, it's those people out on the production floor that are, have influence over the team, you know, and are sometimes very, um, outspoken, but they're the ones I want to go talk to because they'll, they'll shoot it to me straight. Right. And they have influence over their colleagues, but they know like what needs to be done to fix. I think it was John Maxwell. And I don't know if you've heard of him. He's one of my favorite leadership authors. Yeah. And he wrote, he wrote a book called the 21 irrefutable laws of leadership. And remember one of the laws was the law of EF Hutton. And he said, when the real leader speaks, people listen, you know, and he, and he gives an example of early on his pastoral ministry as a young pastor, you know, and thought he was the guy in charge and went, you know, went to quote unquote, lead his first deacons board meeting or whatever. And, you know, the, the real leader basically opened the meeting said, this is what we're going to do. This is what we should focus on. Close the meeting and ask John to pray. And he was like, I guess that's the guy in charge. <laughs> so you're right. Yeah, though. I think exactly. the, the point is you don't need a title to lead. I've got the same type of people on my team that I absolutely couldn't do it without them. They are not, they don't have a leadership title, but they, they mold the vision. They have really great insight. They know what good looks like. They, they provide uh, influence over me and the rest of the team on uh, where we need to go and what we should focus on. And you'll listen to them because of that. And the leadership's influence, again, a Maxwell quote, leadership's influence, nothing more, nothing less. So good. Hey, um, we go back to a spiritual question here. I kind of flip back and forth a little bit, but what, Michael, what are your spiritual disciplines? Like, how do you, how do you stay close to the Lord? What are the things you do? What, what, what do you put in your life to, to help keep your faith strong? I feel like it ebbs and flows, unfortunately. And I, I've got a, I've got a group of guys that uh, we've been getting together for 20, almost 22 years. And uh, we get together every Friday morning. And so it, it's interesting listening to our, our group. Uh, we experience the same thing. And so at my best, it's it's in the morning uh, when I get up or I start work. And I've got a, a devotional, which for the last number of years, I've it's been kind of neat. My son went away. Uh, school a number of years ago, we just, we started getting the same devotion, kind of like a 365 devotion. And, um, so even though we were different spots, we had the same book. So theoretically, yeah. if we were doing a good job, we're reading the same one, same day, even though we're, we're apart. And, um, actually we don't have one right now. I, but that's, it's a good reminder. Uh, we, ours expired, we finished. And so we, we need to get another one. Um, so I do that in prayer and, um, read the Bible. I had been reading 
devotions. I've been reading books, kind of religious books. And I realized a number of years ago, I said, I've not really sat down and just read the entire Bible. So yeah. I did. And so I've done that uh, sometimes now just to get to direct to the source, if you will. Right, right. And uh, I, I learn a lot from, from doing it. But honestly, there are, there are periods, sometimes it's a day, sometimes it feels like a week where I just I get away and I let kind of the urgent get in the way of the important. And I have that same struggle sometimes at the office. I, I have these conversations with people on a professional side too, where the urgent gets in the way of the important and staying disciplined to remain focused on those things that are most important. And I'd say that probably the one where it is the most challenging for me is prayer. Uh, I might think f- from a prayer standpoint through the day, like just as different circumstances come up, but to have the, the quiet, sit down, nothing interrupting, focused time that can get pushed aside because it feels like for somebody who's action oriented, right? I mean, we, we want to get things done and want to check things off the list. I think for me, there's a subconscious component that says, well, I'll, I'll do that a little bit later because I need to get this done. And that's that urgent versus the important. Yeah. But I know when I take care of the important first, the urgent falls in place. And, um, so that, that's just a discipline issue. Yep. Yep. And I, I, I mean, I, I probably should be more embarrassed about that, but I know even talking to my, my men on Friday mornings, it's just a reality that we, we battle up against and it never stops. Uh, but at my best, yes, that's it. And, you know, we, we go to, we go to a church. My, my wife and I go to that we, we really enjoy. So that's, that's a weekly thing. And it's kind of interesting. My son's in Georgia. Uh, you can stream the church. So it's, we tend to be tall. So I'm, I'm six, six. My, my wife is six, two. My son's six, seven. And I've got two daughters, one, six, four and one, six, one. So we're kind of an anomaly when you see us together, but my son will stream in to watch church. So we're kind of going to church together if he's able to. And every once in a while when it's streaming, he'll see a couple of tall people get in the way. And so he'll send us text joking about our heads. Uh, interrupting the view, but you're blocking the past. Uh, that's another view. part of it. It's kind of fun. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, even though he's farther away, we, we have a chance even to connect while we do that, which is, which is pretty neat. My daughter, um, a younger daughter has been able to do that sometimes too. The, the Korean one, uh, timing does not work. No, I'm sure she, yeah, that'd be 12, 13 hours, probably difference. Yeah. Well, you're right on the, as far as the discipline piece. And I, I, you know, I confess the same thing, you know, I would tell you my, my, uh, my best day is the day where I get up at five, you know, I spend time in the word, I spend time in prayer, then I go to work. And even in the morning, I, I plan my day. I've got a little devotional book at work. Sometimes I'll read that. But the percentage of time that I do all those things in the morning is, yeah, it's, it's not a hundred percent. It's probably not 50 that I hit all those, but it's, but then yeah. I, you know, I just, you just keep going it's, you know, it, it is a fight. It's a struggle all the time. I mean, it's sin, our sin nature is never going to go away until we're on the other side of glory. So yeah. And that's good. I like the idea of uh, having a, g- a group of guys you've been with for that long. That's, that's discipline. I mean, that's two decades of spending, spending time and I'm sure there's been hit and miss and on and off, but still just, uh, staying connected. That's huge. I like that. Hey, I want to talk a little bit about past ancient history, Michael, what, when you were a young leader, when you were a young leader, What's something that you struggled with early on in your leadership journey? And talk to us a little bit about, have you overcome that? Is it something you still struggle with? How have you overcome it? Like share, share some uh, history there with us. Perhaps not completely dissimilar from your anecdote about John Maxwell stepping into a meeting, thinking he was a leader and realizing he wasn't, you know, you get done with school and maybe it probably even happened before, but 
Um, you get out of school, you start your career and you think you're eight foot tall and bulletproof and you're trying to figure out how do you establish yourself and what is success and what does it look like? And I, I think for me, it looked like, you know, being the person that was, you know, in charge or the, the, the president, the CEO, and, uh, which obviously I, I, I wasn't, you know, you're just entry level position wherever you are generally. And I think pride is probably the thing that sticks out the most because you want to establish yourself. You want it to be important or successful or to have people recognize you that you have something to contribute. And I, I, I think when you can get past that and it's not immediate, for me, it was that you just start to realize that the more vulnerable you are and the more open you are is where your strength tends to come because it's free. Uh, you don't need to try to put up a facade of, of any sort. And, and I, I know when I, I'm graduating, I mean, you're a young kid in a new job with a bunch of people who knew more than you and had more experiences. I mean, you're, you don't have that much to offer relative to so many other people. So to just lay the pride down and ask questions and learn and just be around those people that are willing to share their experiences and their leadership lessons, it makes you better. And I think they enjoy it. What I've found is a lot of people, once I was able to understand it, when I had conversations, a lot of these were with clients and senior people at the company. If you just started asking them about their experiences and, and shared what you're trying to learn or that you don't know what to do, they were so generous with their time. It was great. And I learned so much. One, one of the things I, I enjoyed, our former mayor, I was uh, young in my career and I, I happened to cross paths with, with him. John Lobie was the mayor and he worked in the same building that I did. And I, I had some interest in, in the city and what he was doing. And I think he appreciated it. And I loved it. He invited me into his office a couple of times and he was in the law firm above our bank. And I go into his office and he would just talk about the city and principles and what he was trying to do. And, you know, I remember one time, I think it was probably two hours. I may have contributed 10 minutes to the conversation, but it was fascinating as a, as a young uh, professional trying to figure out your career, just to listen to his experiences and what was driving him and why he did this stuff. And it, it, uh, it helped me. And there are so many people who have done it. I've got two people that I consider my mentors professionally, and they never volunteered to be that way. It's just two people that had an impact on me. And I, I still care deeply for them. And I, I learned a lot from them and I'd ask questions and I trusted them. Uh, I valued their experience. I valued their perspective. That was helpful. And I think I just kind of grew slowly through that. It helped with other people, helped with our, our men's group. Probably one experience that taught me I needed to change a little bit. I was, I was asked to be on a board. I was, uh, I think I was maybe early mid, I think mid twenties and I was asked to be on a board and it was the first time I was asked to be on a board and it was, I thought a pretty cool board. Uh, it's a county wide and I was, I was the youngest person on it and I, all excitement, enthusiasm, I, I jumped in and I was a, a, a young father and, and hadn't been married long. And I quickly realized that, uh, it didn't really fit with my life schedule from work and then responsibilities at home, uh, the time commitment, and it wasn't really a passion of mine. And I, I served my, my term, but I realized that, you know what, it, it, you can't stay focused just on what something, you know, looks like being on a board was interesting, but it wasn't the right board for me. It wasn't the right time in yeah. being deliberate. And, um, that was also an interesting lesson to help me realize that when you have an opportunity to, to contribute, make sure it's the right one, make sure it's the right fit. 
That's right. And I've, I've shared that with a lot of younger people who have asked, like, you know, be deliberate, be thoughtful about where and how you serve, because not every opportunity is the right fit for you. Yep. And be fair to you and to be fair to the organization, make sure it is. Yep. That's kind of our, probably our, our early 20s is a little bit figuring that out. And I, yeah. at least for me, as I've gotten older, it's, that's become far more refined. And I am, you know, as someone who's 51 years old, I am very confident and compared to what I used to be and what those are. So when opportunities come, I can be like, yeah, that's absolutely a right fit versus that's absolutely not a right fit. And maybe, you know, 20 years ago, it was like, maybe it'll be, but you, you know, sometimes experiment and learn. You mentioned that whole idea of vulnerability. And I'll tell you, I can remember when I was, I had a mentor who was the greatest career mentor I ever had. The guy, just someone I hold in high regards, like you spoke about. And he helped me understand that whole idea of vulnerability. And I would say to anyone who's thinking about that or maybe hasn't considered that, there's a book that also was huge for me in that. And it's by Patrick Lencioni, and it's called The Five Temptations of a CEO. And you don't have to be a CEO to read it. But one of the things he talks about is the unwillingness to be vulnerable and the, you know, how powerful it can be when you just are willing to let that guard down a little bit and, you know, and really be real yeah. with people. And then they start to be real with you. And some pretty incredible yeah. things can happen. I think it's hard, though. I think especially, as you mentioned, just from an age standpoint, I think at a younger age when you're not really sure how am I supposed to behave, what is the right way, and how do you act in certain situations. And ultimately, I think humanity kind of leads that answer. Just be human and yeah. care for others. And sometimes it won't. I found myself in a situation where it was uh, somebody was sharing a personal struggle in, I mean, it had nothing to do with work and you're in a work setting, you're in an office, Yep. yep. but it, it had nothing to do with work. All it was is just two people and you know, it's, it's okay. That's okay. Um, you yeah. don't have to think about, well, what, what's the next project or, you know, what's your role versus my role. And it, it's not, we're, we're people and we have life together and listen and serve. Yeah. And those come up an awful lot through relationships over time because you spend so much time together working that inevitably life happens and it's okay to engage in that and so that you care for each other. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think it's the right way, especially, and I'll go back to, you know, as, as leaders who profess uh, faith in Christ and I think that needs to be part of our DNA, you know, is, is being willing to have that open relationship with people they care about. It. They care about them as a human being, not just as a productive member of the team and whatever uh, business setting we're in. Hey, when you think, Michael, about leadership in general, like high level, like around the world, just in general, what do you think is one of the biggest gaps? If you were to sit back and kind of put on your critical hat a little bit and say, here's, here's a, something that's having the most detrimental impact as far as just lacking in overall leadership. I think this simply, sir, people, I think at high levels, not everywhere, but at high levels in many countries, they've, they've got that serve model upside down. And the people who are leading really are serving a great number of people. And I think can get confusing perhaps at times to think that they're serving you. And, um, when, when I was in, uh, recent in Africa recently, about three weeks before Christoph and I got there, there, there was uh, a mudslide, uh, in Kalehe and the mudslide came down, um, and unfortunately surprised, uh, the village and it wiped out 5,000 homes. Um, and that included, um, hospitals, schools, stores, churches, and we went and visited there, um, 
when we went to see our kids and we met with some of the community leaders and, you know, one of the, uh, the, the chiefs of one of the, so the, one of the chiefs of the area is called Pashushu. He lost 42 family members and they still haven't found any of those bodies that they're, they're, they're covered with the mudslide yeah, and it's, it's horrible. tragic. So the response in what happens there and unfortunately their experience has been, cause this wasn't the first time it happened, but when, when resources come in to serve these people that now have nothing, I mean, there are people literally that have nothing and the resources are getting diverted sometimes from other people that are, you know, they're putting themselves like, well, I need to get here. I need to stay here. I need to do this. And it kind of makes sense. But at the same time, everything should be focused on those people that lost everything. And what can you do to maximize service and resources for those people? And this is maybe just a microcosm of it, but sometimes the needs and wants or the desires of the people who are trying to get there from a, a governmental standpoint or from others, they end up using some that could have been used for the people who need it the most. And maybe that's a, a bad way to explain it, but I just think when we're making decisions, it, it shouldn't be about the people at the highest level. It's how is it affecting uh, the constituency? And I think sometimes we, we get it flipped around a little bit because ultimately the biggest leaders, the people in the highest positions of power have the highest responsibility, not for themselves, but truly to serve all of the people that are supporting them. And I think that's a deficiency. And again, you can look at that from a biblical standpoint. For me, it is, but it, it's not really. It, it's a humanistic one in terms of that's our responsibility. I mean, most of uh, the religions in the face of the world would have a similar responsibility, I think. It's serving other people and finding ways that you can do well. And I know we all fail in that, but that should be the goal. And I think that we have some great opportunities there internationally. Yeah. I mean, everywhere here, there. Yeah. If you think about the most dysfunctional governments, I guess, as you as you were talking, I'm, you know, running that model through my head and I'm like, that's because it's upside down. It's completely upside down, right? That whole nation or that whole entity, that body of people are really serving whatever that dictator and it's yes. completely upside down. And yeah, that's, you know, that's how it works because it's part of God's, I think, design that that's how, when we operate that way and serve others, when we serve, truly serve others, it functions really, really well. And uh, when we don't, it's, yeah. uh, it's broken. And I probably clarify too, with, from a service standpoint too, there, there, there's the definition of serve and that's, that's okay, but people will serve in different ways. So their actions might flow through the, the service, but you know, you can have disagreements on how you serve, but I think the focus on service should be paramount. That's a good point. Hey, Michael, when you do your work, how do you honor Christ? Like, how do you try to honor the Lord through your work? The majority of our job is to create profit and value for customers and owners and shareholders. So, but in that, there's ways that we can honor Christ. I'm curious on, you know, how do you try to do that in your work? That's a great question. And I haven't found the answer to it. It's been a topic of conversation with a lot of friends. And I think one, you don't have to announce your intentions or your reason for doing things when you do things. So I, I'd say my faith drives a lot of my intentions. Uh, my actions are never perfect, of course, but from an intentionality standpoint, that's what drives it. I'm happy to talk about my faith with anybody who would care to ask because it, it's been an important part of my life and it's grown in importance through the years. My wife and I are, are fans of St. Francis of Assisi. We had a chance to go to Assisi and, and kind of see the work that he had done 
And I'm not sure if it's truly attributable to him, but he, it gets attributed to him in everything, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. That's I, ideally, it, it would be a, it would be nice if, if I behaved in a way that others did not have an obstacle to finding their own faith or growing their own faith. I, mean, I, I think the main part is you, you don't want to, to do stuff that prevents others from moving forward in their walk. It'd be great if you could promote it, help them, assist them, share your experiences to, um, to help them. But primarily, I think if you stay, I think for me, if I can stay focused on serving, loving others, which I do imperfectly, that would be, that, that would be the best. Yeah. You don't always like everything and everybody, but there's a difference between like and love. And um, even when people might upset you, maybe when uh, you don't like certain behaviors or you don't like certain people for whatever reason, still trying to find the beauty in them and appreciate them. So that, that can be hard at times. And honestly, it, it, it can, but it, it's helped me a lot with that focus. And um, my wife helped me a lot too. I mean, again, the, the Bible study guys on Friday morning and, and my wife, uh, when we're, we're struggling, we just, just share it, talk about it and, and understand it a little bit better. It's not something that is so overt, I guess, is how I've handled it. And I don't know what the right balance is. Everybody's got their own balance. And I think you just have to be reconciled with Again, who you are and being comfortable with it. And I, I think when you are authentic, people recognize that authenticity, whether they like it or they don't like it, they recognize the authenticity. And when you see that, I think it allows people to at least trust how you're behaving. It's like, well, this is how that person is. And yeah, you trust that. And at least you can ask the person knowing that, hey, I'm going to get an authentic answer. I don't know if that makes perfect sense, yeah. but yeah. that's how I at least view it. No, and I, th- I think that, uh, again, as Christians going in and just doing our job with absolute excellence as much as possible. You do it imperfectly. As leaders, that means you go and you serve your team, you serve your customers. You know, you, you know, my prayer every day is that I would glorify God through my work. And that means doing it with excellence. That means going in and you know, making good decisions and uh, treating the team while serving them, caring for them, caring for customers. At the end of the day, doing, doing it with excellence. And yeah, the, the motivation behind that is to honor God. And you know, for me, I know at least if I'm at any place of work very long, people tend to know you're a Christian because for whatever reason, right, you're talking about what you did this weekend and you mentioned part of your life is you go to church or your friends from church. It just comes out, I think, in natural conversation and they put those two and two together. And yeah, at times I've had the experience, you know, yeah, I've been working for 30 years and I can tell you one time I've invited someone to church and he did come and his family came and they got baptized and they're, you know, growing in their faith. You know, that's been a beautiful experience in my life, but I've worked with hundreds, maybe thousands of people over the course of time and, you know, been able to share the gospel with a few that were open to it. And we had those conversations, but the majority of people were just, you're working with them and you're interacting with them. And it's about those interactions and how you treat, it's how you treat them and how you do your work. And to your point, you're, you're genuine, you're authentic, and they know that vulnerability piece comes in. You're just, this is who I am and it's not perfect. And I know it's not perfect. And I'm just here to try to do my best and help others. So yeah, I hear, I hear what, I hear what you're saying. And I, I completely understand that. Hey, a little different topic. One of the things I try to get from people when we do the interviews here is uh, who do you listen to on podcasts, read? I mean, what, anyone that you follow to help you in your leadership journey? or in your faith journey, if there's authors that you really love that you would recommend for others? I probably, in terms of consumption, probably more books, in, in audiobooks and, and, and written. But I have, I'm kind of a fan of 
nonfiction and reading biographical, uh, autobiographical and, and learn just from reading about other people and their, their, their mistakes or successes to a certain extent. I think some of the greatest ones are just, it almost seems like they were put into history at a particular time and were gifted with certain skills that were just right then. And so I'd say that's probably one of the sources from a, uh, from a faith book standpoint, C.S. Lewis is probably my favorite author. The way he can communicate, I, I'm, fascinated by. I wish I could communicate half as well as, as he was able to in, in uh, writings. Uh, but I think he takes challenging concepts and simplifies them, makes them very attainable and does them fairly succinctly. So I, I'm a huge fan of him, probably from a leadership standpoint, ones that I've enjoyed an awful lot. My kids have asked like, Hey, what should I read? They, they say what I read tends to be broccoli. Uh, they like reading more candy at times, but I thought George Washington was an interesting, uh, personality just in terms of creation of the, the country, Martin Luther King, the autobiography of Martin Luther King Jr. Is I think a must read. I, I told my kids, everybody should read that. It, it's phenomenal. It's actually not an actual autobiography. It's a compilation of his writings kind of created into an autobiography that, I mean, it's just profound. I think if you look at Churchill, I mean, just a, an interesting, colorful guy, but what he yeah. did at that point in time was again, fascinating from a leadership standpoint. I mean, he was not respected or revered kind of, and then he became this incredible leader and then he kind of went away again. Yep. Um, yeah. You talk about and, you know, what you said was, about someone being dropped into a, like a time in history yeah. to do a thing. That's yeah, That's a, that's a yeah. fascinating character. And then. Uh, just one that's probably become a little bit more personal for me. I, my wife and I had a, an opportunity to go down to South Africa uh, several years ago. And when we, we, we visited Cape Town and Robben Island is, was a prison part of South Africa where Nelson Mandela was imprisoned for most of his imprisonment time. You know, that's a common place for people to go as tourists. So we went there, we're on the island and doing the tour, you go around on a bus. They don't want people walking around because they don't want you taking anything or messing up any of the, the, the stuff, which is really not historical. And so we were at a little hut where they sold books and sodas and restrooms and um, you just took a break. And I ended up meeting Christo Brand, who was uh, Nelson Mandela's prison guard, which doesn't sound like much, except they became lifelong friends. And so when Nelson Mandela was freed, he stayed in contact and stayed friends with Christo. And when Nelson was elected president, he asked Christo to come in and be his aide or one of his aides, not a political aide, but, you know, just helping around the office. And when Nelson Mandela passed away, Christo was invited to sit with the family. And what struck me so much when I met Christo, I started talking to him and just asked him about Nelson Mandela and the influence and the experience that Christo had by being by Nelson Mandela, his principles, it kind of just came out of him, which was fascinating to me. The, the impact that another man had on this man was profound. And what really got me too, as I read more about Nelson and Christo has a book also, Nelson Mandela was a black prisoner who was placed in an awful prison and they had white prison guards that treated them terribly. I mean, Christo was told this is the worst felon, criminal terrorist in the country. You know, and, and there's some truth to that at the time, but I mean, for good reason, it was justified, right? They weren't supposed to talk to each other. The, the white Afrikaner prison guard was supposed to hate the black prisoner and vice versa. 
And yet through that, they became friends and they cared for each other. And the humanity that existed when it wasn't supposed to. And that, that leadership in figuring out that there's more going on than just this stuff over here. There's, there's more important things. And that is something that I, when you think about leadership, that's leadership. Because when Nelson Mandela came out, became president, and he addressed the entire nation, he had plenty to be resentful about. And there, there could have been plenty of things that he could have said that would have been justified. And instead, what he came out with was a message of peace and love. And the fascinating part was after he addressed the country in English, which was everybody, most everybody speaks English, he addressed the country in Afrikaans, which was effectively the language of the oppressor at the time. And it was just, this man preached peace and reconciliation. And you can see that in Cape Town and you can feel it talking to the former prison guard. And that's incredible leadership. Not only is the leadership great, but it was inspired, I think, with the right focus. It was humanity and, and, uh, and peace and love. So yeah. that is probably probably one of my favorites. Good. Oh, it's good. I was going to ask you who some of your favorite biographies were. So thank you for sharing that because I think we can learn a lot. I think we can learn a lot through, through that. So Michael, if you were sitting down talking to somebody just starting their leadership journey in whatever industry, maybe, you know, maybe one of your kids is, you know, get their first opportunity to lead the team. What advice would you give them? Uh, just know you're going to make mistakes. You have a ton to learn and take advantage of all the people and the relationships around you. Build relationships, treat people the way you want to be treated, be humble and find ways to serve others. And, and I think and, and probably the last thing I, I think is just find something that you, you love and go find a way to be excellent at it. Don't, don't get married to what other people think you should do or what, you know, society thinks, Hey, this is the process to success. These are the steps. There's no one way and there's no, it's not a destination. So just find something that you love and, and then go be excellent at it um, because you'll enjoy it. And it, it won't feel like work so much. It's just something that you want to do. Simply probably those things. That's wise advice, I think, taken, especially the, yeah, go find something you love doing. I mean, that's something I've worked, tried to really work to, you know, help with our kids and others. Just don't go do something just because the world says you should. I've, I've worked, I, example I've seen it, I've worked with some really, really good engineers who are really, really good at it, but they feel like they have to go be people leaders, managers, right, to continue in their career. Yeah. And for some of them, they do, and they're great at it. But boy, I've seen some that just, they, it's just not what they're wired to do. It's not what they're going to be good yeah. at. And, you know, and so, I've, yeah, that's an example I've seen where it's not worked out. Banking was never my goal. I think there's probably some people that, hey, I always wanted to be a banker. I wasn't that. But I, for some reason, have loved West Michigan and Grand Rapids and loved being here and watching it grow and maybe having a tiny piece of, of, its, of its growth or success. I enjoy that. And I get to be here. So my time is spent in West Michigan and I got to spend time with my family that my, my job allows me the, enough flexibility that when there were sporting events or school events, academic events, that I, I could be there. And the people I work with, the businesses, the leaders in the community, I get to be engaged with that and engage with uh, different organizations through boards and service. Uh, the people I work with and the, the types of job or the type of work that we do together all that stuff is really what the job is. And so it's not even so much that it's banking per, per se. It's being able to work in the bank doing all these things, but also all that other stuff that goes along with it. And that's the part that's really fulfilling and enjoyable about what I do. And the bank provides an opportunity to, to do all those things and to, 
hopefully help businesses and help leaders and uh, play a role in it. Yeah, that's a good point. You're, you're not so passionate about T accounts and ledgers and accounting and all that, but you got to well, know said, it. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I mean, that's part of it. You, you got to know it. Yeah. Hey, Michael, uh, last question. And then we'll talk a little bit about how people can get in touch with you if they'd like to. And we'll, we'll put links to books you've recommended. I want to put a link to the ministry you talked about into the show notes so people can find out more about that. But fast forward 10, 15 years, I don't know when you're you know done working full time banking. What, what do you hope people will remember about Michael Seitzma, you know, when they think back to their time working for you and with you? That's a tough question. Um, um, boy, first of all, I don't necessarily want to stop. I'd love to be able to keep going, just doing stuff. And probably it'll, it'll probably pivot and be maybe a little bit different, but um, that I care, you know, just trying, trying, certainly, certainly succeeding, but to do the right thing and to, to make things better, to serve. Hopefully I was able to, uh, I think relationships are so important that if people that are around us have a sense that they were important and that the relationship mattered, that would be great. Shown imperfectly, I know, um, but an earnest effort to to love others and that, I mean to to have good relationships, make our community better. Boy, I don't know. I, I don't know how to succinctly say it. I I guess so, just that I didn't screw up. Yeah. Terribly. <laughs> well, and the theme, if I, if Michael, if I had to say what the theme of what I've heard all through this interview is serve, is serve others. And, um, yeah, I've heard you talk about that both in ministry as well as work. So, you know, I'm sure people will remember that about you, that you, that you serve the team while you serve customers well. So if people want to get in touch with you, if they're interested in learning more about the, the ministries you've talked about or just reaching out, uh, what are some good ways and LinkedIn or social media, websites, whatever. How, how can they do that? LinkedIn, Michael Seitzma. I'm at KeyBank, Grand Rapids, probably the best one. Our organization for Christoph's Children, it's Christophschildren.org. So instead of Christopher, just take the R off. I'd recommend if somebody has any interest in it, the, the most fascinating thing, and actually we're, we're going through an update just because we were recently there. Uh, but my wife is taking some of the pictures that we took of the children. So we took pictures of all the kids and she's matching them up against the pictures when they came in. And you can see them when we were introduced, when they joined the family. And then you can see them today. And I think overwhelmingly what you'll see is a brightness and a lightness, hopelessness to hope build children. It's a cool thing to see. There's some, there's some videos and stuff in there, too, but good. You, know, you can take a look at it. Yeah, I'll put the, in the show notes, I will put a link to that website and uh, so people can check that out. I know I will be. So, well, hey, man, I appreciate your time today. It's been fascinating to get to know you. Thank you for what you're doing and uh, serving both in ministry and in your workplace. I think uh, you're a good example of how God can use us to to do both, serve in a, the, just the secular world and do that well, and then look for opportunities he has to for us to serve in ministry. So appreciate your time today, man. Jason, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be uncomfortable and do this. That's I appreciate it. And thank each of you for joining us again this month to hear what God is doing in and through a fellow leader in the workplace. Hey, could you please take a moment and rate the podcast? This helps others to find us and it provides us valuable feedback. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to being together again next month.